Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Well, hello, and welcome back from your weekend. You know, today doesn't feel real. I mean, I I think every day has different degrees of how real it feels. You know, do you know what I'm talking about? That some days sort of feel a little bit less real than other days. And they should do that. And when I say they, I think I mean meteor- meteorologists should put out a reality index on every day. This day feels only... <laughs> Today will feel only 80% real. Um, and they need something like that because meteorology is, you know, it's not that it's on its way out, but within, what, 20 years, it's all going to be toxic hurricanes and sandworms. And, I mean, how many times can you say that over and over again? So they need something else. Having a reality index, how real the day feels. So for whatever reason, today does not feel as real as other days. And the other thing I have to tell you, I think it's important to start sharing these things. You know, right before we go on the air, I'm often thinking about something. And today I was thinking about the notion of a cri de cour. And my cri de cour, cri de cour is a French term, meaning cry from the heart. My cri de cour is increasingly wordless and inchoate. But I was thinking they should have international championships, you know, cri de cour championships, where people try to exceed one another in the plaintiveness of their cri de cour. And then Cat Pastor told me that uh, Love Island is going off the air and CBS might be interested. And uh, Probably after Love Island, you do have a cri de cour. That's like right when you need to have a pretty good cri de cour. So uh, there could be commercial possibilities is what I'm saying. But but probably not. (laughs) Probably not from either of the things that I just described. Fortunately, uh, we are about to move on from the things that are whirling around in my head uh, and instead invade the brain space of Molly Jong-Fast, editor-at-large for The Daily Beast and co-host of the podcast, The New Abnormal, which I think comes out on Tuesdays and Fridays. I don't know if this has ever been said aloud, but that is my (laughs) Yes, it does. It comes out on Tuesdays and Fridays. (laughs) All right. Good. I'm glad that I wasn't just imagining that. Um, no, that's it, right. It doesn't say anywhere it comes out on Tuesdays and Fridays. But if you listen, you become gradually aware that you only hear it on Tuesdays and Fridays. That's right. So, we actually have a Sunday special, like, secret podcast that is part, that is for Beast Insiders. Now ah. I'm plugging it. But <laughs> actually, this week we did it on the debates. And the alternate and a couple of other places actually put it outside the paywall. So a lot of people got to listen to it. And I am actually glad they did because we had Philippe Reigns and uh, Philippe Rhinus. He's going to get so mad at me <laughs> for mispronouncing his name. And, um, my, and Mike Madrid. And they were really interesting. And Mike Madrid had lots of interesting polling about Trump losing Trump losing some of his base voters. Well, that's all very well and good, but I wasn't actually done citing your accomplishments. Sorry! Uh, Sorry. She's also the author of two novels, Normal Girl and The Social Climber's Handbook, and a memoir, Girl, bracket, maladjusted, close bracket, uh, and the uh, 2013 International Cree Decor second place finisher. Uh, that contest was held in Lyon. Um, there was some <laughs> some some issues with the German judging. Uh, I'm just going to leave it at that. So um, 
So I guess we have to talk about what I mean, we don't have to, but I mean, it's weird the way one topic drives out another. So over the weekend, producer Betsy Kaplan and I were just kind of coming up with some topics to talk to Molly Jong fast about. And then Sunday night happens and everywhere, everywhere you look, <laughs> everywhere <laughs> you go, the topic is to completely rotated over to yeah. to an old topic. You know, it's like an oldie that just suddenly people are playing it on the radio again. Uh, and, and that is the taxes uh, of Trump. And I guess I'm going to begin by asking you, I mean, there's at least three stories within this story. One of them is he doesn't really pay taxes. And it's right. like even slightly more annoying when he pays $750 as opposed to nothing. Nothing's right. actually more palatable than $750. <laughs> so there's that. Then there's he's a really crappy businessman. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, one of the reasons that his tax returns are so complicated is he's not doing well and he's constantly having to shuffle things around uh, in, in order to make that work. And then lastly, you know, he's borrowed a lot of money from somebody, uh, yeah. probably through Deutsche Bank. And I, I would sort of couple that with the fact that you know, we, we can really start to see some of the income from foreign powers, the money coming in from the Philippines and India mm -hmm. while he's president of the United States, which is so I don't know, among those, do you feel as though one of them's kind of more top line than the others? I mean, there's the foreign, I think, who does the president owe all that money to? And, and, you know, is it a foreign interest? I think we'd be almost, I think it's less scary if it's just Deutsche Bank. We don't know. I mean, I don't know. There's a lot to unpack there. And then there's the way he paid Ivanka and then Ivanka, you know, there's all the wealth, the trying to get around the gift tax stuff where he pays Ivanka as a, as a consultant. And then, which is, you know, you can't give your kids money like that. And then he deducts it. So it's like two different kinds of illegal. I mean, the thing that Trump supporters always say is that Trump is a wonderful businessman and he has taken time from doing this business that he's so good at to, to, you know, take care of the American people. <clears throat> and we know this because he donates his salary. Now, of course, none of that is, it's preposterous. So the, the question is, will they hear that $750 and say like in 2016 or 2017, he paid $750 and I, in, in federal income taxes and I paid, you know, a Trump supporter might say, and I paid 10 times that. So that's the question is like, is that concrete enough to relate to? And I think it may be. Right. I, first of all, I just want to back up and just uh, pounce on one thing that you said, which is, you know, Deutsche Bank is kind of like Fight Club. It's like right. the first rule of Deutsche That's Bank. Right. The first rule of Deutsche Bank is it's never just Deutsche Bank. Right. And the it's second true. rule of Deutsche Bank is it's never just Deutsche Bank. So if he <laughs> so owes right. Deutsche Bank $420 million, he owes, he owes somebody else that money. That's uh, right. That's right. um, and and I do feel as though the problem is like we're heading into a debate tomorrow night. And if the moderator says, you know, Mr. Trump, you President Trump, you you owe somebody four hundred and twenty million dollars. Who is that? Right. You know, he's going to have some BS spring loaded answer. I mean, the likelihood that he'll just start crying and admitting that, you know, that Putin owns him or right. something. That's just very low. Right. 
I think it's very unlikely that he says like, oh, you've got me this time. That's it. I can't get out of this. Mm. But that because he never does that, he'll push back and say, well, Biden took $200 trillion from, you know, from uh, Brazil and I can prove it in two weeks. But the thing that I think is interesting, I think about this a lot, is that Atlantic piece with the Jeffrey Goldberg piece. Mm -hmm. A lot of this stuff we knew that Trump said those kind of things about troops, but we had never seen it in such a concrete way where we sort of knew who the source was probably. And we knew we sort of, it just was, it was sort of like, it, it sort of crystallized what we had heard as rumors. And I think this is closer to that. You know, we knew, we saw that one page a long time ago. So we knew rumors of corruption and tax cheating, but here we really see it like laid bare. And I actually think that this really could move the needle in that way. Yeah. And we certainly now know that there's two groups of people who are chumps and losers. A, the people who lay down their lives for their country and B, right. the people who pay taxes. Um, right. And uh, so you don't want to be in either one of those groups, apparently. You know, uh, producer Betsy Kaplan is making a really good point on Slack, uh, which is that the $750, the reason that's a problem is people understand that number. Like most people don't understand, I didn't pay any taxes. Immediately right. it just seems like, okay, so you're, you're Jackie Onassis, you're somebody, you know? Right. Um, so that's not me. Uh, um, but people, people can understand $750 relative to what they do pay. And it's a number that they actually know. <laughs> <laughs> no, right. as opposed to seven billion dollars. So you know, it could be just that the smallness and concreteness of the seven hundred fifty dollar annual payment could become a problem that way. Yeah, I I also think there's I I think it's just laid out in such a clear way that it's hard for. I mean, I heard Junior this morning on Fo on uh, Fox and Friends or whatever sort of propaganda channel, the Fox, the Trump, there's only, well, that and OANN, but uh, making the case that his father paid other taxes, right? Like sales tax, I mean, we, or state tax. I mean, we all pay taxes, like that's the deal, baby. But, um, and that we don't know what the other tax is because we didn't see the whole thing. <clears throat> and that uh, argument gets them into a lot of trouble because they can solve that by just releasing his taxes, right? That's how we'd be able to see that. But he'll never do that because, of course, right? Right. Uh, he can't possibly do that. Well, if so, he were going to do it, he would have done it a long time ago. If, if he could afford to do it and and not completely, you know, self-destruct, he would have done it in 2016, 2015. Right. Um, we've always known. I mean, he's, you know, it isn't because of the audit. It isn't because of any other right. thing. It's because if the truth became known, it would really bother a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, and, and I do think, yes, I mean, everybody should try the experiment per Donald Trump Jr. of just send the IRS a letter saying, you know, I've actually been paying sales taxes and some state taxes and my, <laughs> and my car taxes were really big this year. So I feel like I'm good. Property you know? tax. Yeah, we're yeah. good. I think you and I are good. And, uh, you know, I'll talk to you next year, but I've been paying some other taxes. So I think I'm <laughs> yes. going to skip these federal ones. Yeah, I think the IRS loves that. They're really big on that. Just pay what you want. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like one of those little vegetable stands by the side of the road. You know, you just like slip some money in the jar. That's take right. A few, it's the honor a, code. Take a few zucchinis. Um, 
you know, as we head into this debate, though, it is an, it's interesting to to think about how this might go, you know, and and, yeah. and how I mean, we saw his technique for debating Hillary Clinton. I doubt it's changed very much. Well, you and, don't think he's spent hours and hours <laughs> practicing? Yeah, no, he could have been sitting down with like big volumes of Oscar Wilde's epigrams, you know, trying to come <laughs> yes. up with incisively witty comebacks. But I don't think so. I think he's going to yell and interrupt and try to be intimidating and be a bully. And, and yeah. you just sort of wonder, you know, I mean, it, it's a hard, the, I mean, to, to the extent that it's permitted, like, I, I keep going back to the debate where he followed her around the stage, mm -hmm. like, like she'd just gotten off the bus and was trying to walk back to her apartment. And suddenly there's like this strange man who's following her. Yeah. Um, and the moderators didn't say, go back, go, go sit on your little, you know, pedestal there or whatever. You can't follow your opponent around the stage. But, you know, I mean, a lot of it, I think, does depend on maybe moderators saying, OK, you can't do that. You can't do those things. And I wonder if they'll have the courage to be the lion tamers. Right. And that I think that's absolutely the issue. Like we I, I was I, I was on reliable sources this weekend and we were talking about that, um, you know, Chris Wallace is really talented. And even though he works at Fox, he comes from the real world of news. And he's, you know, Fox is very lucky to have him. I, I don't know how they do, they have him. But, you know, he he really is talented and smart and has done a lot of writing and a lot of really good journalism. But the problem is you're not, this is not a normal debate. This is not a politician, a normal politician who lies a little bit or fibs or, you know, uh exaggerates this is a person who really is just completely unbound to the truth and it's like this idea of how do you how does a free press cover an autocracy how do you <clears throat> and and the problem that a lot of media outlets have gotten into though i think they did they've done a lot better this time around is this idea you know you can't cover him like uh jeb bush it's not the same thing right he's not he says things that are, you know, can you imagine a traditional politician getting up there and saying, we're going to make coal great again, right? We're going to make coal. It's so preposterous. Like there's no, he could, if you, and, and the problem is be, nobody said like how, because, you know, nobody went to him and said, you know, coal is 10 times more expensive than this, this, and this. How would you propose to even make it great again? <clears throat> and I think fundamentally, it's going to be very hard for Chris to just keep interrupting him like that. Right. Uh, no, I would agree. And he's sort of said that he won't do fact checking. I don't even expect fact checking anymore. But like, I do expect, you know, I mean, like if this were a lion taming act, I would expect that the lions have to go like sit where they're supposed to sit and they, right. can't, they can't poop on the floor, you know, <laughs> and like stuff like that, really basic kinds of stuff. And, and that really wasn't even the case in 2016. A lot of those debates contained moments, you know, I think even just calling her a nasty woman and stuff. Right. I, I'd like to see the moderator kind of upbraid you and say, that's sorry, that's not how we debate here. We don't do that. So don't do that anymore. The problem but, is you're not allowed to like if if you could like take points away from them during debates like all right that cost you three points you know I mean right. <laughs> there's well, no the, way to enforce anything. The problem is he's not bound by convention, so he doesn't you know you 
you you can't do normal things with him because he just ignores it. And I think that fundamentally most of the people, <clears throat> even the journalists he complains with are ultimately very genteel. And so they come up against this, you know, this oligarch, this autocrat, this guy from Eastern, you know, he's a sort of, he's, an, he's Victor Orban without the, you know, class. <laughs> and I'm using that very <laughs> lightly because, you know, but he, so we're not, as Americans, we're sort of used to this very genteel system. And so it, I think it really caught people off guard. I would alter that to Victor Orban without the goulash. Right, exactly. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just to sort of shift gears here, because I, I you know your time is limited and we don't get to talk to you ever before. So, uh, and maybe ever after. Who knows? You know, oh, I mean, no. I want to come back. Um, but um, but in, somehow they're dropped into the middle of this. I mean, one of the rules of the last four years is that we are always drinking from the fire hose. It's not like yeah. an occasional thing. You know, yeah. it's not like a fire hose happy hour we go to once in a <laughs> while. It's just like we're always drinking for the fire hose. So, I mean, in the middle of all this, we have like all these other considerations, including this super speedy one justice only checkout line, yeah. you know, uh, right. you can get right through. Uh, and, and, and the notion that the justice must be installed partly because she might have to adjudicate um, the, election <laughs> the election returns. I mean, <clears throat> I don't even yeah. know what I expect you to say about that, but I mean, it is one of the other things coming out of the fire hose. Well, what's fascinating about that is that in 2016, we had eight justices and nobody in the Republican Party was like, we got to get a ninth one in there. Let's just slip Mer Merrick Garland in there. In fact, they were like, it doesn't matter. We're fine with eight. It's fine. It's fine. It's fine. So there is this incredible, breathtaking hypocrisy. Fundamentally, Mitch McConnell has the votes. He knows he has the votes. He doesn't care that the public sentiment is against him. He's he is, you know, laser focused on getting um, Amy Comey Barrett into the Supreme Court. Now, I think that he, you know, you you probably know this, but Act Blue, the Democratic fundraising mechanism, which is just a machine that goes to candidates, has raised three quarters of a billion dollars. So mm. what I think Mitch McConnell knows, and I think the choice he's making here is that he's going to push the Supreme Court justice in, but he knows very well that he's probably going to lose the Senate over this. And right. yeah, continue, yeah. continue. So, so and losing the Senate is, and I mean, there are so many Republican seats in play. Like I was writing it down the other day and I couldn't believe, I mean, Alaska. I saw polling from Mississippi, which has, you know, Mike Espy one point behind Cindy Hyde-Smith. Like the map, I mean, John Cornyn could lose in Texas. Like what he did by pushing Amy in is he's made Roe like a centerpiece. And the problem is Republicans can't win on Roe. Yeah, although I, I do want to just temper that by saying, and I've read a few articles that kind of made this point, too, that there may be some places where the sword will cut the other way. I would agree that if we just had an election tomorrow in which the president were chosen entirely on the basis of Roe v. Wade and reproductive rights and stuff like that, that that, in fact, 
Roe v. Wade and reproductive rights would would win. That that candidate would win. But I, I think as you get down into the kind of micropolitics of individual states, there may be some states where uh, a little bit of fire in the belly over this may wake up a, a sleepier conservative campaign or a campaign where they just kind of couldn't stand the whole Trump thing anymore and lost their appetite for being Republicans. I, I just don't, I'm a little bit more agnostic about some places. I have to certainly I mean, you look at Colorado or whatever. And yeah, absolutely. Right, Colorado, but but places like Colorado, Alaska, Alaska is very pro-choice, right? That's a crazy one. Texas. Right. I mean, it cuts in the South. I think that's where you're like Alabama, maybe. But a lot of the focus group stuff, I mean, and I'm talking from the Republicans, the rule of law people do a lot of focus groups and they have so they they all say that this is not this is not a good issue for him. The other thing that I think is interesting is they also say every time he says he won't uh, agree to the peaceful transition of power, voters hate that. Mm. Which I think is I, I'm I, they are as scared by it as we are. Yeah. Which I think is a good sign. Yeah, no, I agree uh, that that can't be and that will alienate uh, people from both sides of the aisle. And I mean, even anybody who lived through 2000 and I lived through 2000 and I was a journalist during it. And it was just wasn't fun not knowing it wasn't fun having to figure out how it was going to be decided. Right. Uh, and it took a lot out of everybody and went on a really long time. And, yeah. and you know, it just. It, it's not a good kind of excitement. I mean, if they had at Six Flags a 2000 election ride, <laughs> people would not want to go on it because uh, yeah, they, they, they wouldn't know where it was going to come out uh, or like who was going to be in charge of running the ride. So. So, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, you know, now, whether that's an, a poison pill. I, there's just this, you know, this, as usual, this cloudy group of persuadable voters who are hard to find, hard to meet. You know, Mary Louise Kelly can interview like three of them every night or something. But, you know, they, we don't really know who they are and, and we don't know exactly how far in any direction they would be pushed by one thing like failure to guarantee peaceful transfer of power. Right. It's true. No, it's I mean, the secret sauce of all of this is we don't really know. Right. Mm -hmm. We don't know what happens in hearts and minds. But we do know that Trump ran on burning down the state. Now he is the state. Right. Yes. Well, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what you do with that. Well, no, that's I mean, he he more than most people who are president. He's very. L'état, c'est moi. Uh, so, yeah, he is the state. All right, let's take a break. We'll have a, a more of a Molly Jong Fast uh, on the other side of this, so don't go away. The emperor's got no clothes on, no clothes. He doesn't want to know what goes on, though everyone knows one small We are back with uh, Molly Jong Fast. She has uh, many accomplishments, some of which I will endeavor to uh, recite right here. Uh, editor at large of the Daily Beast and host of the podcast, The New Abnormal, Tuesdays and Fridays. We have confirmed this. Uh, she's the author of two novels, The Normal Girl, Social Climber's Handbook, and a memoir, Girl, bracket, maladjusted, uh, a closed bracket. So, 
Let me just switch gears here because uh, I've certainly been following your work for a while, and I was kind of caught by surprise by this piece you did about becoming a vaccine trial volunteer. Tell us about this. So I really wanted to be, you know, I believe in science and medicine. And over the last couple of years, I've seen America go very anti-science. And it's been really scary to watch. And it's funny because, you know, I grew up in this house filled, you know, my mother's a feminist. My grandfather was a communist. Like I came from a house where they both had shticks. They'd say, you know, my mother would say, America's got very anti-sex. They're so puritanical and anti-sex. And my grandfather would say, you know, these capitalists who take money from the poor and they never, you know. And what I had noticed, and I'm not, this is not, I, I noticed a, a, like a rapid anti-vaccine, kind of rabid anti-vaxxer, anti-science uh, message, which got me really scared. And when the pandemic came, I live in New York. I lived through the really horrible, those really horrible three months where just I knew so many people got sick. I knew so many people who lost their dads. I, I just really saw a lot of destruction. And so when they started, when they started, uh, you know, being a chance to volunteer for these trials, I went and I just made sure to get on every trial I could, you know, to sign up for everything to see, and nobody called me. And finally I got into this Yale trial and um, it was great. And I was so excited to get to be a part of it. And, you know, I mean, okay, let me just sort of be the counterbalance to this and say, and I've voiced this sentiment uh, here on on Mondays, several weeks in a row now. But you know, I'm like really great about getting vaccinations. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, I got my flu vaccination. I'm over 65, so uh, I now get a pneumonia vaccination. Usually, if I go to the vet, I get a rabies <laughs> vaccine along with my dog, just in case, you know, uh, heartworm, whatever. Uh, yeah. I get that too. So I really do believe in in vaccinations and immunology, and I listen to the podcast this week in virology every week and try to learn everything I can about it. However, I am somewhat skittish right now just because uh, of the way there seems to be an override, a political override on the scientific process. To me, this is the vaccine trial I would never volunteer to be right. in. So, uh, And I know that you know what I know. So uh, how did you deal with those feelings? Yeah, well, that's actually why, that was the second reason why I decided I really wanted to do it was because I have a lot of smart people, including some of my family doctors who had expressed some real hesitation. And so, and that worried me a lot because, you know, if, vac if pe vaccines are only as good as people taking them, right? Mm -hmm. People don't take them. It doesn't matter what, it doesn't matter what they can do, right? So what I did was I talked to a lot of really smart people. I talked to Dr. Eric Topol. I talked to a lot of virologists. I talked to, and, and the general feeling was, think, I mean, there's, what, what we don't realize about coronavirus, because it's such a terrible disease, is there are some very good things about it, too. Namely, it's very close to SARS. And so the, we were already a little bit ahead. with the, And remember, I'm not a virologist. I have a master's of fine arts. So I'm just telling you my rudimentary understanding as a non-doctor, but as a trial participant. So we were already a little bit ahead. And then these... M, they, what... 
I sort of understood that this Trump hasn't gotten his hands in the science, right? He may try to push ahead the J and J vaccine because Woody Johnson is a big Trump donor. That may happen. We don't know. You know, we've seen him in the past do things like that, right? To sort of favor his people or his supporters. I, I think more of that will come out, but. I knew that these vaccines were working without Trump, right? They were going along. And I knew there was Moderna. There are three, there are basically three stage three vaccines right now. Moderna, the Menentech Pfizer, and the the AstraZeneca Oxford. And so when I got the chance to be in the Pfizer trial, I would, and and I'm at the Yale study site, I was happy to get to do it. And I felt... I, I knew that the, sci- the uh, these mRNA vaccines are very, very safe. Now, the mm-hmm. question will be the efficacy more than the safety. And I know the mechanism of vaccines, and I know that vaccines themselves are very safe. So I felt very comfortable with this. Yeah, I haven't had a, This is a geeky, wonky, this week in virology kind of question, and I haven't had a chance to ask it of anybody at Yale yet, but I'm sort of surprised that there is... Uh, um, a, a cohort uh, of um, of people participating. I mean, you drove up to New Haven and then drove back to New York. Well, these places have really low infection rates. In order to test the efficacy of a vaccine, uh, right. the people have to be in a situation where they could get sick or where they can be compared to other people who are either getting sick or not getting sick. Connecticut and New York seem like really lousy places to test a vaccine. Well, that is true. And in fact, one of the reasons when I first started trying to get into a trial, a number of smart doctors were like, they're never going to give it to you because you're not, you need to be in a hotspot, go to Texas, go, go, you know, there's been so much testing in South America because, but in fact, um, the way that you can, you can test, you can check this by measuring the antibodies in the T cells, like with anything else. Mm-hmm. So it, it's not actually that, I mean, certainly it would be better for the study if it were taking place in a place with more uncontrolled spread. But the reality is in America, we still have really uncontrolled spread. And just because there's slightly lower in New York than there is in Pennsylvania, doesn't, I mean, these states, there's no, you know, people travel between the states all the time. I mean, it's not like we're in in New Zealand or someplace where there's just no crossover. So I still think it's reasonable, but also these were, you know, it started in the more high concentrated areas. Oh, too, yeah. The, yeah. Um, yes, no, I, I and for, for all of that, I live very near the governor's mansion in Connecticut. Uh, and there's people who show up there and they demonstrate against any kind of precautions. So I could just tell you when those happen, and then you could just walk through that crowd. And if you don't get sick, uh, you're probably immune. Because um, <laughs> they're not like doing it. They're not. They don't wash their hands. They don't wipe their butts. They don't do anything. You know. Um, <laughs> As they don't wear masks, they don't do anything. So yeah. I'm also really impressed that you got to talk to Dr. Eric Tobel because we tried to book him all the time for this show. He's like the guy you can't book. Is that true? Yeah. Can I? Can we use your name next time? We know Molly. Is that going to help? You know, it's so funny because I said, I thought, who's the most famous doctor I know? Like, who's really famous and who are really, like, really smart? Like, who would be the person? Because I was, like, the night before and I was freaking out. And I, so I wrote to him and I, he was like, oh, I really like your Twitter. You want to just call me? (laughs) 
And I was like, yes, I would like to call you on the phone, Dr. Topol. Yes, I would like that very much. And so there you go. It's and so was, unfair. It was like, you know, it's you such know, a... Twitter is just one big Studio 54, you know? I mean, either they're going to let you in or they're not. It's But obviously, you've got pull. Hey, uh, Bali Jongfest, I know we promised you you'd be uh, out around 140, and here it is, 140. Uh, we hope you will come back. It seemed like you were having a good time. Either yes. that or you, you might have been faking it. We, we, no, we don't really never. know. We don't really know, uh, but it was great. All right, so when we come back, and Molly may want to listen to this, we're going to talk about a very unusual, if there is any other kind, election in Georgia, where they have a very strange way of, they call it jungle voting, I think, of voting for U.S. Senator. And there's a Lieberman involved and a really bad novel that's tone deaf about slavery that's written by a Lieberman. So uh, first, time to say some heartfelt thank yous. So one of them is to Cat Pastor. They're in the studio uh, making everything happen the way that we want it to happen uh, and also making it possible for others of us to work remotely. And among those people, uh, I thank a senior producer, Betsy Kaplan, who is also the producer of this particular episode. Uh, and I should say something about tomorrow's show, but I have no idea what it is, but maybe someone will slack me <laughs> that information. Uh, but I, there's definitely a show on the air tomorrow. There won't be just an eerie, toneless hum. So, um, oh, it's about... Uh, now, how do I say that without... It's, it's about sex and intimacy among people who are overweight. Seriously, significantly overweight. This is a show we did a few years ago. And it's actually... I shouldn't say it's actually a really good show because that sounds like that's counter to your assumptions. But I know it sounds a little bit I don't know, Dr. Oz or something. It's not like that at all. It's a good show. Um, all right. I didn't sell that the right way. So, and, and I'm being told also they prefer to be called fat, not overweight. Okay, fine. Um, it's a good show. It's a good episode. You'll enjoy it. So uh, now it is time to talk about Georgia. Uh, and in Georgia, they have something called a jungle primary where, uh, in this case, 21 people, I believe, uh, are running all at once. Uh, two of them will be selected as finalists. The other 19 will immediately become the cast of uh, Temptation Island season uh, 2021. Uh, so it doesn't seem like a good way to do things. Uh, and maybe it isn't. But here to tell us one way or another is Anjali Njeti, uh, an award-winning Atlanta-based journalist. Her essay collection about activism and debut novel will be published in the spring of 2021. She's the co-founder of the Georgia chapter of They See Blue, an organization for South Asian Democrats. Uh, she wrote a piece that caught our eye. Uh, actually, somebody made, flagged it for me, a dynastic privilege, a terrible novel, and the race for a crucial Senate seat uh, for the publication Literary hub. So welcome to our show. We're so happy to have you. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. I love how you described the casting off of the island. I think I'm going to use that in my next phone banking session. Right. We're all, we're all about uh, Temptation Island here today, even though I don't, really, don't even 100% know what that is, but we're still all about it. So, so yes, this is a complicated thing. So Georgia Governor Brian Kemp appointed uh, Republican Kelly Loeffler, probably at this point best known outside the state of Georgia as one of several kind of COVID profiteers 
who appeared to make some stock moves uh, using information that they, as U.S. senators, had that we, the public, had. But what else do we need to know about Kelly Loeffler as we move into this conversation? You know, she's one of the wealthiest people serving in Congress right now, which which says something, given how wealthy some of our members of Congress are. Um, but she is she also regularly insults the women's basketball team that she co-owns, co uh, the Atlanta Dream. Um, you know, members of the Atlanta Dream basketball team have been, you know, lead leaders in the Black Lives Matter movement for some time. You know, they wear uh, Black Lives Matter t-shirts. They speak out in support of the movement. And of course, this really ruffles uh, Kelly Loeffler's feathers. And, you know, she will oftentimes go on Twitter to to attack them. Um, and, and she, you know, her, her tweet after the uh, passing of Justice Ginsburg really says it all. I mean, you know, there is, there, there's no sadness, no expression of, of grief. She just is demanding, uh, you know, a pro-abortion, uh, 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 a pro-life, excuse me, um, uh, nomination um, from, from President Trump. Um, and she made that clear almost immediately after Justice Ginsburg's death. Um, so what we have in her is a very far right wing Republican um, and uh, someone who is just like Donald Trump, someone who is just like uh, Georgia's current governor, uh, Brian Kemp. Um, and, you know, one of her other uh, colleagues, Congressman Doug Collins, is running alongside of her and uh, they are essentially mirror images of one another. Um, so um, in this era of such um, racist and xenophobic sentiment, you know, we have two front runners in this race who, uh, who are up going to uphold that um, and sort of lead the continued charge of, of white supremacy that has come to characterize the Republican Party. Right. So uh, we get to know Doug Collins during the impeachment hearings. He's a, a million laughs. Um, uh, great to have around always the life of the party. So um, um, so meanwhile, I mean, there's so many other narratives going here, but this, there is a narrative which you're already kind of uh, hinting at uh, about race and about the emergence of a different politi political class, even in a, a place like Georgia, which has Stacey Abrams and stuff like that. What? So so how does race enter into this? Who who's that candidate in this incredibly complicated field? So of the 21 candidates who are running for what is called the jungle primary special election, um, which is also happening the same day as the general election this year, we have eight Democratic candidates. Um, and one of them is Matt Lieberman, who is the son of former Connecticut Senator Joe Lieberman. Um, he is running as a, a Democrat. And um, depending on what polls you look at, he's polling somewhere between 10 and 15 percent. Well, Matt Lieberman had a moment after the Unite to Right rally that took place in Charlottesville in August of 2017. Um, and in that moment, um, when he saw the white nationalists marching, he his response was to pen a, a novel, which he's entitled Lucius, and which he self-published in 2018. And this novel 
tells a story which is essentially in the present day about a character named Benno, who is in his 90s, who recounts uh, the adventures that he used to have with a man named Lucius, who he deems was his slave, was his present day slave. Um, we don't know much else about Lucius other than the fact that, uh, you know, Benno used to neglect and abuse and condescend to him. Um, in what is a very racist book in every, uh, every respect possible, in fact, the word racism and racist, they're hardly adequate to describe how offensive this novel is. Um, but needless to say, Matt Lieberman, who is the a Democrat running for this seat, penned this very racist novel in 2017 and published it in 2018. Um, and he has since defended it numerous times in interviews as being an anti-racist book, when really this is a slave fantasy um, taking that takes place in the present day, um, which, of course, to many Georgia voters means he's absolutely ill-equipped to be a candidate in this race. Um, and... Black activists and organizers here, including State Senator Nakima Williams, including Reverend James Woodall, who is the president of the um, NAACP of Georgia, have called multiple times for him to drop out of the race for months now. And he's just digging his heels in. He truly believes, as he writes in this novel, that there are value to racist narratives. There are value to people like his character, Benno, in, in, in this racist fantasy of owning uh, an imaginary slave. Um, and so there's just this stunning degree of cognitive dissonance here and really a willful and dangerous ignorance, especially in the present day when we have, you know, continuous police and white vigilante killings of black people here. You know, when we have these, you know, uh, these uh, surgeries being performed on people in ICE detention centers without their consent. Um, and, um, and we have the constant stream of rhetoric coming from the White House, which is really endangering um, black people and all people of color in the United States right now. Before we go on, I just have to say something, and it's going to sound a little like bragging to you, uh, but I think <laughs> if you if you Google me, you'll find out I'm right. So you've seen uh, the movie Ghostbusters, right? Yes. Okay, so you know you got ghosts. You call Ghostbusters. Who are you going to call? You're going to call Ghostbusters. When you got Liebermans, I'm really on a very short list of people that you would call about this. There's like three people you could call when you got Liebermans. It's me, Gail Collins from the New York Times, and a guy named Bill Curry. I wouldn't call him because his rates are very high. Um, <laughs> and um, But like that whole thing that you're describing, which is this odd melange of cluelessness, uh, stated good intentions, in a way that is not entirely reliable seeming, vanity and ambition and a strange ability to suddenly inject 
toxic content where you wouldn't expect it to come. Mm -hmm. That's like, you know, that's a family tradition. Uh, and I could have, like, if you guys had called me, you know, I don't know, six months ago, I would have flown down there and it wouldn't have done any good because you can never cope with these guys. But uh, you would have known more about what was coming because it really, this, the, the book, you know, I think he probably does think that it's really this you know oil over troubled waters kind of narrative and he doesn't see what's wrong with it just sort of the way same way right. people who who like the book on with the wind they go oh well no it's actually it's about chivalry and, you know. <laughs> absolutely no you are you are spot on and it's hard to know when you're reading the book which incidentally was extremely painful for me to do it's hard to know what is more offensive in this scenario is it the is it the writing and the storytelling itself or is it the fact that he produced this book truly believing that he was making the world a better place. <laughs> and it's, it's hard to know what is worse. You know, I've been a book critic for about 10 years, so it's not as if I've never reviewed a racist book before. Mm -hmm. um, I have. Um, it's, it's just that, it's just that this, this is almost something out of another era. I mean, I was telling my kids the other day, I feel like there are Republicans who would read this book and even be offended by it. That's how egregious of a story it is. I mean, there's a there's a scene in here where um, Tree and Benno, the two main characters, bump into a, a Klan rally. Uh, again, this is present day, and I'm not saying it can't happen in the present day, but it's just roughly 2013, 2014 that this scene supposedly takes place. They bump into Klan's members and you've got the N-word flying back and forth on several pages. I mean, granted, you know, there are people in the White House that think that's okay. But, but the fact that someone who alleges to be a Democrat and who alleges to be concerned about issues of race in this country, you know, there, there's just a shocking degree here of of just not really understanding what racism is. I'm not even sure Matt Lieberman would be able to ask that question if he was answered it. What is racism? I'm not sure he would know. Um, but but certainly uh, he he spends a lot of time you know criticizing Donald Trump online and you know complaining about racism. But I really don't understand. I, I really don't think he understands the working definition of it. He doesn't understand that white supremacy and racism is institutional um, and that it's not just certain individual acts. Um, but the biggest thing he doesn't understand is that racism isn't healed in this way. There's no progress in fighting white supremacy by romanticizing a, a character's racism, by, by letting them, you know, uh, use this black character in this story and abuse this character in this story. Um, so yeah, he really misses the mark on so many levels. And that's probably my most generous critique of this book and of him that I can come up with. All right. So uh, we only got a couple of minutes left, Anjali, but I want to make sure you get a chance to make the point that in a way, the book has almost an allegorical impact uh, on the race itself. Uh, there is a, a black candidate who uh, could, in fact, uh, pose a pretty Absolutely. significant challenge, uh, the Reverend Raphael Warnock. And I assume by hanging in there, Matt Lieberman is is draining at least some votes from him. 
He is. And so Reverend Raphael Warnock is the front runner uh, in the in this race right now among the Democrats. I mean, he's almost tied to both Doug Collins and Kelly Loeffler. However, there are only two spots for the runoff on January the 5th. So it's really going to come down to the wire. We've only got like 36 days left until the election. And with Matt Lieberman taking, you know, 10 to 15 percent of the votes, uh, seemingly only from name recognition of his father, um, you know, he's got to drop out of this race. It's imperative that he does. And the irony of, of all of this, of course, is that if he doesn't drop out of the race, he's going to cause tremendous damage to the people who live in Georgia because they will have no choice but to vote for one of two truly horrific candidates in the runoff in January. So yes, I mean, Reverend Warnock is the candidate. He has been a civil rights uh, leader for many years and um, he's clearly the best candidate to get the job done. So uh, we're all still pulling for Lieberman to drop out, but I'm not very optimistic at this point. No, I'm guessing he might have called his father and said, Dad, I'm concerned I might do tremendous damage, uh, and in which case his father would have said, that's okay. That's okay if you right. do that. Right. Uh, so uh, we have to say goodbye very reluctantly uh, to uh, Anjali and Jetty, an award-winning Atlanta-based journalist uh, who's here to tell us uh, about this rather unusual electoral process. Uh, it would be unusual, if, even if there weren't a Lieberman involved in it, it would be unusual. Uh, yes. But it's, it's that much more unusual now. Thanks very much for your time today. Thank you so much. It was an honor to be here. All right. No one has ever said that before, but but there had to be a first, right? Somebody had to think about it that way. Um, so uh, thanks to, to Betsy Kaplan, to Kat Pastor, uh, to Molly Jong-Fast, and uh, certainly to uh, Anjali. Uh, and we will be uh, on the air tomorrow with a show I refuse to discuss anymore uh, and can't believe I did in the first place, but apparently I did. And uh, then we'll do more shows. Was feeble and well. She was caught last night and she was grinding like hell, doing that Georgia grind. That old Georgia grind.